There were rumors, there were stories. Everything was unmentionable, but nothing was unimaginable. This mystical flirtation with the idea of sin, this sense that it was possible to go too far, and that many people were doing it, was very much with us in Los Angeles in 1968 and 1969. A demented and seductive vortical tension was building in the community. The jitters were setting in. I recall a time when the dogs barked every night and the moon was always full. On August 9th, 1969, I was sitting in the shallow end of my sister-in-law's swimming pool in Beverly Hills when she received a telephone call from a friend who had just heard about the murders at Sharon Tate Polanski's house on Cielo Drive. The phone rang many times during the next hour. These early reports were garbled and contradictory. One caller would say hoods, the next would say chains. There were 20 dead, no 12, 10, 18. Black masses were imagined and bad trips blamed. I remember all the day's misinformation very clearly. And I also remember this, and I wish I did not. I remember that no one was surprised. Hello and welcome, I'm Douglas Foles and this is 42 Minutes, a podcast about meaning from SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Thursday, August 22nd, 2019, and though many people believe that the 60s ended abruptly on August 9, 1969, it's also possible that they ended August 16th, 2019, when we laid to rest an easy rider. It's also possible that 1869, when the country came together over a golden spike at Promontory, Utah, seems closer than that summer 50 years ago when we traveled to and had our first camp out on the moon and when half a million people shared a farmer's field for three days in August. Anyway, in trying to make sense the last 150 years and the newest Tarantino film to boot, we're going to reconnect with David Bushman, who we met first back in 2017 for episode number 269. Bushman is the television curator at the Paley Center for Media and co-author of Twin Peaks FAQ, All That's Left to Know About a Place Both Wonderful and Strange 2016, and the Buffy Vampire Slayer FAQ, All That's Left to Know About Sunnydale Slayer of Vampires, Demons, and Other Forces of Darkness 2017. Once upon a time, he was program director at TV Land, and once upon another time, television editor at Variety. Noir is his expertise, but also his existential condition. Bushman, <laughs> Bushman recently interviewed Tom O'Neill, author of Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA, and the Secret History of the 60s for the Paley Center, which is a nice entryway into the events of these interesting anniversaries. It really is an honor to be welcoming, welcoming David back to the program today. Welcome back, David. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you, Doug. It's great to be here. You bet. And so I found it funny that you had so many once upon a times in your bio. Uh, <laughs> I guess I don't even remember that, but that <laughs> is funny. Yeah. Well, let's start. I mean, there's so many threads this summer that are just out there to to latch on to. Um, but let's just start with the Paley Center. I don't know that I know enough about it. What is the Paley Center, and and why is it that it seems to attract so much, like interesting things? You you guys do tons of live events, it seems. 
Yeah, well, we've been around for, um, gosh, I think since 75, we were uh, founded by Bill Paley, who was the head of CBS, and his idea was to preserve television because a lot of it, there really weren't ancillary uses at the time, so a lot of companies were either throwing their programming out or taping over it, and there are many, many sad stories like that. But um, he wanted to preserve it, but also make it accessible to people who wanted to see it. So that's where we differ from like the Library of Congress. So part of what we are is a library or an archive. It's non-circulating, it doesn't leave the building. And the other part of what we are is we do events and, and we, you know, because media permeates every aspect of life and society, we could be doing an event, you know, like we have an event coming up in April on media bias and coverage of politics. Right now we're hosting a gallery exhibit. We have uh, several sets from the marvelous Mrs. Maisel and, Next month, we'll be uh, welcoming the cast and creative team of Law and Order Special Victims Unit. So we're all over the place. And, um, yeah, we have a, a good reputation. We've been around a long time. And, um, you know, we, we are funded by the industry. So it, And, you know, we celebrate what they do. So, so they support us and, and um, kind of, you know, it's a, um, you know, works both ways. So then is is it like a museum in that, the exhibits are open to the public for admission or free, and that's a uh, per kind of exhibition thing. Or is it always is there always something that someone can walk in off the street and see? Well, we have two kinds of exhibits or exhibitions. One would be your more traditional concept of one, which would be in our gallery space, which right now is Mrs. Maisel. Before that, we did something with with Shark Week, but we've done all kinds of things over the years there. That's kind of like a three-dimensional space. It could be photographs, but... And then there's, uh, we use the term exhibits as well for screening series. Um, so we'll take a concept or a person and uh, sort of delve into our library of 160,000 programs and put together some thematically or personality uh, themed screening series. So there is no uh, charge for admission for those things. There's a suggested contribution, which hopefully you'll make. But um, when we do our live events, those are, for the most part, ticketed, and those there there is an admission fee for those. And then the other curiosity is, like, uh, I recently saw you guys hosted the creative team for Lodge 49 to launch their second season are there enough employees at the place that you don't personally get to go to like every opening kind of thing? Or, you know, is it a small enough staff that you are on duty most of the time? Well, um, first of all, that one was in LA and I'm in New York. Oh, so I yeah. would not have gone to that. Yeah. But in those types of events, usually I, um, you know, if I, there, there's, there are three different curators if I worked on the event, which I don't work on every one of them, I will go to the event. If I don't work on the event, it's just depending on, um, you know, uh, what seat availability is. I, I don't, if I don't work on an event prior, you know, like write copy for it or produce a tape for it or anything like that, I'm, I'm really not, there's no reason for me to be there. I can go if I want to, but there's no need for me to be there. 
we have, you know, like an event staff and a visitor service staff. And, you know, uh, so they basically are more responsible for handling the actual live events. And then you, you say there's, there's a sister branch in, yeah. in L.A. Is it, are there just two then or are there multiple? Yes. Yep. No, just two. Just two. Well, that's great. Um, and so with that, with the, you know, I'm, um, let's talk about chaos then. So like I, after the Tarantino film, I, I saw that this book was coming out and I was really interested. I hadn't ever been in, interested in Manson at all before. Um, and I definitely reached out to the author, but uh, thankfully you you were able to get in touch with him and, and interview him. Um, so tell me about your own interest in this. Were you Is this something that you had explored in the past, or was it just the timing of the 50th anniversary? I do remember some sort of perverse fascination with Manson and his family and the, these crimes back in uh, whenever it was that Vincent Bugliozzi's book Helter Skelter came first came out. I was I was obsessed with that book for a while. I remember my father was kind of worried about it, but um, so it, it, and then it was dormant for a really long time. And I mean, you know, I'm, I there are many of Polanski's films are you know, I love them, not all of them, but a lot of them. And, um, I, you know, I do sort of seem to have a sort of fascination with true crime and it does worry me in my more pensive moments, but, um, that is certainly one for the ages. So, um, it was something I was obsessed with, got, was laid dormant for a while. And I guess the movie or word or anticipation of the movie sort of revived it. What did the reading this newer book do in terms of what your own what your understanding of the historical moment was? Like what? Yeah, well, I, I, no, I don't know how much from a historical uh, standpoint or from a um, the actual standpoint of what happened on that night. Uh, either way, I think you know the the book is incredible, incredible job of researching. I mean, this is Tom O'Neill. You know, I don't know him. I never talked to him before I interview him for this, so I have no stake in his success. But he was supposed to do um, a 30th anniversary piece for Premier Magazine back in 99. And this book, he just kept going down one rabbit hole after another. And the book came out in 2019. So it was, it was like 20 years late with the book, not through any fault of his. It's just that he just kept uncovering these, these um, leads. And I think that, um, you know, there's the, one of the funny things I just had to mention in my interview with him was there was a point where he was like sort of pleading to God that his research wasn't going to touch on the Kennedy assassination, which is like, you know, the whole mother load of conspiracy uh, stories, but it did. And then that, so then he knew that he was going to be doing it, you know, spending like another five years on it. The 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 main thing is from a from the perspective of the events of that night itself, I, I think it's pretty clear that Vince Bugliosi, the who um, who prosecuted Charles Manson, was a psychopath, and he knew that he was being dishonest, and he did what he did anyway. And I, I think the suggestion is that he did it to further his career, which is, you know, not not a new uh, revelation for me that 
a prosecutor or someone in law enforcement would do something like that. But every time it happens um, and I hear about it or read about it, it just depresses me monumentally that people would, you know, completely, I mean, in this case, he wasn't ruining somebody's life, but he was not, it was, he wasn't about, it wasn't about, it was not like in this case, like the Central Park Five where kids, innocent kids got put in jail, but, you know, it wasn't about, it was about himself rather than about getting to the truth of the matter. And I think that that's a disservice to the victims, if nothing else. The, and it seemed, the the way it was portrayed by O'Neill is that the narrative, Bugliosi's narrative was definitely really clean as far as, you know, this is this was the motivation and this is what happened whereas through that book you realize that everything was a lot murkier um it just well, that's just it's very well said murky is exactly the word for it it's, i think you you just articulated it very well i mean he gets into all sorts of possibilities i i can't after reading this book i i find it hard to believe that Charles Manson was not an informant on somebody's payroll. I don't know who, but I mean, he just was let off. They just let him get away with so many things over the years. And then I think they sort of had to cover their butts because, you know, they, they could have had this guy in custody. They could have prevented these murders from happening, but they, but for circumstances that Tom suggests without ever, because I, when I asked him, what he thought happened, he won't go on the record saying. He's just saying, you know, I just want to put all these things out there and, and let everyone sort of reach their own decision, which I told him sounds very David Lynchian. But, um, <laughs> but, um, but you know, the, certainly su the suggestion is that, um, you know, that, uh, that, that he was an informant on somebody's, on somebody's payroll. And, and in pop, possibly having something to do with uh, keeping an eye on the Black Panthers or other uh, radical African-American um, groups based out in California. Yeah, but it's just amazing, too, because then the the whole idea of conspiracy, you know, you, you think of people like Philip K. Dick or Thomas Pynchon, and, and they're, they're paranoid, and, and, you know, they seem to be, they, you know, they might be the canaries where they're actually onto something, like true that's it, oh, very it's real it's really <laughs> true you know you you really have to stop i mean you know i mean so reading um chaos sent me back to um now reading the report on the 1970s or early 80s when they when they um reinvestigated the kennedy murder the house committee did and you know i mean it's kind of interesting there, there's no question that the FBI kept stuff from the committee, from the Warren Commission, to cover again their own hides, and it's kind of interesting because I know you're a Twin Peaks fan, and um, I uh, I'm working on this book right now on a murder that took place in upstate New York in 1908, which was part partial inspiration for Twin Peaks and Mark on Mark Frost's part anyway. David Lynch didn't know the story, but. And when you go back and you read the, the, it was never solved. And you go back and you read the accounts in the, in the papers from 1908, which you can do at the libraries. The temptation is you just almost by default believe somebody because they're a cop or a district attorney or whatever. But what I'm finding out is that 
that's just wrong. That's just crazy to believe people just because they're in positions of authority as much as we want to uh, know, have an absolute definable truth. I mean, it's just, you know, I don't know. I'm beginning to feel more and more like Fox Mulder, but you know, I, I just don't trust. It's getting to the point where I just don't trust anything anymore, you know? Well, I don't think you're alone. What about uh, history being so? Did, did, I'm guessing you did see Tarantino's Once Upon a Time. Yes. And, and then I, I wonder about young people who don't have any any sense of history, and then think a film like that not not necessarily the <laughs> the twisty ending, but just the idea of. Uh, you know, there's a lot of criticism about that film, but yeah. the film was fun too. You know, what did you make of it? You don't want me to to talk about the ending, right? I, you know, I think we could say that I can put spoilers out there, and we can say that I, I'm okay, okay with it. Okay. Um, you know, I, I, uh, from a, just from the standpoint of, I thought a lot of things about it, which I guess is a good thing. But for one thing, I, I loved Tarantino's early work, like. Um, true Romance I loved I loved um, the Kill Bill movies I loved um, Pulp Fiction and probably my favorite movie of all time is Inglorious Bastards so and when I finished watching Inglorious Bastards I you know which has a very strange and imaginative ending of its own including the death of Hitler in a movie theater but um, I you know, I saw that. I mean, I am old enough to have known to know all these movies like The Longest Day and Battle of the Bulge and all these like super star studded movies where somebody like Robert Mitchum would show in it, show up for 15 minutes in the movie and then he'd be gone for like an hour and then he'd come back for 15 more minutes. And, and there were stars like all over. And I knew that that's what Tarantino was doing with Inglorious Bastards, so I didn't care that the ending was completely different from reality. I he was making a movie about movies, and I know that's what he does. And for a while there, I thought that was really cool. But his past few movies have just let me like just I just want him to move on from that and and do something other than make movies about movies. You know, I think there's a certain limit to how rewarding experience that can be. So from that standpoint. You know, I, I didn't love it. It left me flat. And I would also say that I do, uh, you know, I had some of the same concerns that some of these critics who are talking talking about it as sort of a regressive or reactionary movie where, again, you know, it's like, it's like as if a love letter to the heroes, of the John Wayne heroes or the heroes of the John Ford movies that these white, tough, cowboy macho men uh, kind of like a longing for those days and um you know i think that's you know i think there were a lot of problems in those days that he's kind of papering over so so i don't know you know i i didn't love the movie let's put it that way what did you think of the movie well when i was watching it i really enjoyed it as a ride but then afterwards i definitely felt more and more uncomfortable with because it does have this kind of conservative it, uh, ethos, I guess, at its core, where there's just a number of things that continually reinforce, you know, the the heroes as the top of the pyramid on some level. Like even the 
the Bruce Lee scene was fun, yeah. but I didn't, you know, I, afterwards I it's like, why, you know, why is Brad Pitt supposed to be so much better than the martial arts expert? Which I, I later learned was potentially based on a real event that uh, Bruce Lee was fought some guy and he didn't know judo. And so this guy was able to do some lifts on him. But then Tarantino flattened out the narrative because the the real history was too nuanced that eventually they did become friends and train together after some kind of event on the set of Green Hornet. If that is to be the history that I read is to be believed. But yeah, I don't know. And then even though it seems like it's doing something to Sharon Tate as uh you know, like a, as a person removing her from that moment in time and, and giving her her life back. Cause you know, it does seem like she is, that's, that's what she's known for, not for anything that she did, but because she was murdered. Um, but you know, I could see that there were feminist criticisms of how she really wasn't in the movie either. It was, you know, about Dalton and, and the stuntman. Yeah. No, I, I, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that this, that, uh, people, I wouldn't say that this gives people a lot of, um, food for thought about Sharon Tate. I mean, she, you know, uh, she's still a pretty wispy character in that movie, I think. Yeah. But I mean, as far as being able to, you know, it just feels like this is a summer of anniversaries. There was the the moon landing anniversary. It's this Woodstock anniversary. And so it was nice to inhabit that world, even if it is Tarantino's idea of what that world was like for a couple hours in the summer. I, I enjoyed that. I agree with that. I mean, he's clearly a, uh, you know, a, a uh, exceptional craftsman. It's just that, like I said, I think that there's, you know, when he's been doing this long enough, I think there should be something more to his movies than what I'm getting out of them emotionally or intellectually or whatever. It's just not, it just leaves me kind of feeling flat. And like I said, it's it's kind of disappointing to me because I really loved his early stuff. I mean, I, I think of like that opening scene or the scene in, in Glorious Bastards where she she's burning down the theater and she, you know, says this is what the face of a Jew looks like or something, or this is the face of the Jew who killed you or something like that. I mean, that's a powerful emotional moment, you know? Um, you know, then you think about like that, uh, even though a lot of people didn't did, thought Kill Bill was you know, a little too gratuitously violent, I think you think about that that sword fight scene between Uma Thurman and Lucy Liu in, in the garden when it's, I think it's snowing. I mean, that is incredible. You know, so I just didn't walk away with that kind of feeling at all this time. Yeah, and then, but the other interesting thing too is, uh, like, the Coen Brothers made a similar film, I think, about. It seems like we're we're nostalgic and we're looking back, and you know, we look back to a time that seemingly made sense, and so in this instance, both in uh, uh, Hail Caesar and. Once upon a time, they're looking back to like studio Hollywood, where there were these structures in place, and and perhaps Tarantino now is thinking about our our internet reality, where Netflix is now the one who's funding movies and stuff. Uh, 
I don't know if there's a question there. <laughs> no, but I mean, it's interesting, too, that you said that, because when you were talking about the Coen brothers and nostalgia, I think like three different, I, I said to myself, like, where is he going with this? Because he, he could be talking about Miller's Crossing, or he could be talking about um, the True Grit. Um, oh, yeah. You know, that they seem to be, now that you put the thought in my head, they seem to deal a lot with nostalgia. And I, I, would, I would have to say Miller's Crossing is, I think, one of my favorite movies ever. So it, it's not, and, and, and clearly it's an homage. I mean, it's, I think it's based on a Raymond Chandler story, isn't it? A glass key or something like that but it you know um so but for me it worked and i'd have to see it again to tell you why i'm reacting differently to that than i am to um to um once upon a time i i think the other really interesting thing about once upon a time and i've talked to a few people who said this is this is probably going to be a spoiler and uh tom o'neill was one of them so if you don't want to hear this you should close your ears but i think like i mean i'm assuming that you went into it like i did thinking that once upon a time was a reference to the movies that sergio leon had made once upon a time america and once upon a time in the west doug is that what you were thinking i didn't have enough background in so as soon as you know some of those posters and the music came up i knew what he was referencing but i, I didn't i'm maybe a little too young to have spent a ton of time watching some of those Sergio Leone westerns but the thing is at the end and again I'm spoiling this but at the end when he comes up with the ending that he comes up with and the title comes on once upon a time takes on a completely different meaning now it's like a fairy tale like this is the fairy tale version of what happened and and um that was kind of interesting I thought and a lot of people have, I'm not the only one who sort of uh, commented on that. And like I said, Tom, Tom O'Neill was one of them. But that that was kind of, I thought, a, a, a neat little thing that he had done. Yeah. Well, um, so I saw a picture on, on, on Facebook. I'm curious. Uh, it had, it seemed like all the Twin Peak fan community heavies in it. Um, you and John Thorne and Brad Dukes and Scott Ryan, maybe Courtney Stallings. Courtney's in it, yeah. What was going on recently that 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 picture was capturing? That, that was a. I think that popped up as an on anniversary on Scott Ryan's uh, um, newsfeed, and he, you know how like on Facebook it'll say. Like five years. This is this happened five years ago today, oh. and and gives you the option. So that was from. Gosh, that was from. I'm I'm wondering if that was. Um, if that was, I mean, I, it's it's weird. It, it was either from. Could have been from the Twin Peaks Festival that I went to, the one festival that I went to, or it could have been. I don't think Courtney went to. Um, we did something together in Richmond has a version of, uh, has a Twin Peaks celebration that we did, the Great Southern, they call it. We did that one year. We did Awesome Con a couple of years. But I think the only one that Courtney, the only thing I, I think the only time I met Courtney was at the, the festival. So it probably was that. Well, so. It's the Kwame. Yeah. <laughs> what, do you, what do you make of, I mean, it seems like the people that were really buzzing are still 
still buzzing. Um, things are still being developed and made, and conversations are having. What do you What do you make of the the season three now that some time has passed? Um, I mean, I haven't watched it again recently. I, you know, I watched it two or three times a week when it was going on. I mean, I sort of have this theory. I mean, I, um, I think what's interesting about it is that I, I think that's among, it was obviously critics loved it. It was, and a lot of fans loved it. It was a lot of critics named it. I think it was after the leftovers. It was the most popular show in 10, in, in um, top 10 list for that year. It was a 2016, I think, that it came out. So um, the more critics named that the number one show than any show that year except for The Leftovers. So they loved it. Some people even put it on their, some film critics put it on their list of, of best films of the year. I think that a lot of film, a lot of fans loved it too, but I also sensed a lot of um, disappointment in it in that it, uh you know, I, and it's just kind of my theory that I'm going on. Where I, yeah, I don't know uh, if you know that I'm doing working on this book on Mark Frost, um, where I've spent like a year interviewing him. And, I, I was going to uh, ask you about that. Yes. <laughs> okay. So my theory, and it's not his theory; it's my theory, um, is that um, I really think that you know, you you know that they wrote the script together, and then he went off and wrote the books, and David did the direction and the post-production. And I really think that um, it's like John Thorne once said in, in a, in a, um, in a editorial for wrapped in plastic years ago that he doesn't think people want David Lynch to direct a David Lynch script of season three. This was way before he, he thinks they want Mark uh, David Lynch to script to direct a Mark Frost script of season three. And I think that whereas season three, as it turned out to be, was amazing and connected uh, on a very profound and um, cerebral level. I think that a lot of people felt that some of the warmth and sort of humor that they were used to from seasons one and two, or at least the, the strong parts of season one and two, and certainly all of season one, um, were missing. And my theory is that that was a function of the fact that Mark Frost was not uh, very involved in, was not involved at all in the, in the direction. I mean, he was on set for some of the shooting, but basically the script got turned over to David Lynch. And so if you like things like, you know, Lost Highway and Inland Empire and so on, I think that, you know, you'll love the return. But if if you like Twin Peaks seasons one and two, if that's your favorite David Lynch stuff, then I think that, you know, you're going to feel a little of the heart and soul missing from this show. That's my feeling. What do you think? I don't know. I mean, it was so much fun while it was happening, but I don't, there's, yeah, I, the, there's, cerebral is really the right word for it because it seemed like it was enigmatic and a mystery. And I'm not certain, I, I, I don't know that David Lynch necessarily always has things spelled out. You know, that he's just exploring things and sometimes they really connect and other times maybe it just looks cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it does look cool though, doesn't it? Yeah. It is. <laughs> but, the you know, the other interesting thing were the books that you're talking about, the books that Mark Frost created. 
and I really enjoyed those, but then also had problems with them. Uh, yeah, I mean, everybody did. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, I think that that's kind of the argument is that the two of them do their best work when they work together. Um, right. Isn't yeah. That what people say yeah, <laughs> like it, without one that the other sort of tends to um, lean too much into whatever their um, obsession or proclivity is or whatever. So. So, yes, I, I think that's a very fair point. I'm sure I'll I'll revisit the series and, uh, you know, get all energized again at some point. But, yeah, I don't right the now. The thing, though, uh, Doug, the thing, I guess, again, you know, like I said, I spent a lot of time talking to Mark over the last year. So the thing that I would distinguish between, you know, yes, uh, Mark Frost books, have problem have issues and yes david lynch's some of his films have issues but i think the difference is that people don't call david lynch on his issues i mean i love david lynch's work um so don't get me wrong about that but i think that it's possible that he he may be overcredited for the success of twin peaks i guess it was interesting, yeah, and so definitely Brad Dukes was like one of the only people I heard really criticizing, and it seemed like because i didn't I didn't know that I had enough context to criticize because you know we just were so lost every episode of that thing i don't I didn't know that I could um yeah, it was really an interesting time. I, I I enjoyed it so much though. Just looking forward every week to the the new. It's just really doesn't. It goes against our our whole ethic now as far as how we take in things. Where it's just a binge. Yep. Yeah. Uh, no, all true. It was definitely um, great fun, and you know, it's really um, there's some incredible, incredible. I mean, obviously, part eight is. Um, you know, who's ever going to forget part eight, but, um, you know, that the, the part 18 was like a total mystery to me. I, I, I know from talking to Brad that he had issues with season three, but I haven't, did he write something about it? I, it seems like, uh, at, at that point in, in time, I was listening to a lot of different podcasts oh, okay. and, and I, I'm pretty sure, you know, I heard him voice certain criticisms with, okay the direction things were going. But so let's talk about true crime a little bit and talk about your, your upcoming book. So it's, is slated to come out in 2020 then? Uh, the, uh, I'm yes. sorry, the Mark Frost book. Yes. It's the, the, wait, which book? The Mark the Frost. Frost book or yeah. the Hazel? Mark Frost is supposed to come out in, uh, I think March of 2020, just in time for the 30th anniversary of the, um, premiere of the series season one. Um, so yeah, that, that's, um, that's pretty much researched and written at this point. So it's a question of, um, designing it and, um, illustrating it. Uh, so that's pretty much done. But then it sounds like you have a, a is her name Hazel Cox? Is that? No, her name is Hazel Drew. Hazel that, Drew. Uh, yeah. yeah, she, um, she is the sort of Laura Palmer character who was, murdered upstate in New York in 1908 and um, 
Mark Frost used to vacation there as a kid because his grandmother had a home there. And, um, and so she used to tell him stories about, about Hazel's ghost. Cause I think the way Mark and his brother Scott tell it, that she didn't want them roaming in the woods late at night. So she would say like Hazel's ghost was, was out there. Um, so he remembered that, that story when he was, um, writing Twin Peaks, because there's there are a lot of similarities between the towns. I mean, it's, it's a small town, and it's it was once a, a mill town. It's got it's got it's got lakes. Um, so there's a lot of similarities, and I think he uh, referred back to it uh, a lot of times in when he was working on Twin Peaks, including uh, with reference to to Laura. This hazel was found in a pond. Her body was found floating. And then they they pulled it out, and uh, so she didn't wash up on shore like Laura did. But it was the same kind of thing where she was this young, she's 20, beautiful, supposedly very beautiful, and um, you know, supposedly um, it pretty clearly seems to have led kind of a double life. So, so that's the connection, and um, turns out to be a great story in and of itself. But hopefully, between that and the Twin Peaks connection, will you know, sell a zillion copies and make a zillion dollars. <laughs> One always hopes. Yeah. There was, yeah, so like where life and art end up in the same realm, uh, you know, the kind of moments that Tom O'Neill was detailing, like on the Spawn Ranch and these, it's, it's interesting how, you know, Twin Peaks also even though it's so playful in Twin Peaks, you know, One-Eyed Jack and basically sex trafficking and cocaine and all this kind of stuff, it just enters, you know, it, it, it's, it's real life. Uh, y- yes, it is. <laughs> it's, um, real life can be pretty, pretty sorted. And, uh, you know, there, you, you know, I think Twin Peaks did effectively, was sort of almost meta in a way. I mean, they did have that invitation to love, but I think it created uh, something of a distance between itself and you so that it wasn't, uh, you know, there are some things that are sort of, like I have this conversation with my wife all the time. She can't watch a movie about ghosts or, um, she can't watch horror movies. But she can watch movies about, you know, like Daniel Pearl. You know who Daniel Pearl is? The, the Wall Street Journal reporter who had his head cut off by uh, Al-Qaeda members. Yeah. So she can watch that stuff, you know. So I say to her, you know, the, there are, I, you know, I don't think, maybe you think there are ghosts. I don't think there are ghosts. I don't think there are demons, um, literally. So how can you have trouble with that, but not with the stuff that's real. And I think that, um, I don't know what the answer is for my wife, but I think that, you know, horror that's horror things that are frightening or dark that are consciously removed. And, and, you know, I mean, Twin Peaks was a little bit, it was hyper real. I wouldn't call it realistic in any way. I would call it hyper real. So, you know, I think it sort of created a distance that made it, made it, safer for us to watch but 
you know, I mean, but, you know, I mean, Bob is just a metaphor anyway. I mean, we're not really worried, Doug. I don't think about Bob showing up in our doorstep, but I think we are kind of worried about what Bob represented showing up on our doorstep, you know, but, but, uh, you know, and that's what really a lot of horror is just metaphor for, to quote Albert, I guess the evil that men do, but, um, there's something that, that, in that remove, I think making it the devil instead of, um, the guy who chopped off Daniel Pearl's head, that, that, that's cathartic to me, you know, uh, releases fear as opposed to creating it. Hmm. Yeah. So Tom O'Neill definitely brings, you, you could see the way he wrote that book, you know, he himself and his process are part of the book and he's the, I'm not going to say the star, but definitely that's the way he wrote that. I wonder when you're interviewing um, Mark Frost, what is your process like? And then how does that? Well, nothing. Yeah, nothing like that at all. And also in the Hazel Drew story, we 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 talked about uh, inserting ourselves into it because one of the interesting things about the Hazel Drew story, and and Tom had this problem too, you know, um, you really do sort of want a protagonist, like you want that Cooper character that that somebody can relate to or or have faith in. And everybody Tom was running into was corrupt in some way or lying. And he sort of almost, I think, by necessity, had to become that character who is trying to get, you know, he's the one who's fighting to get to the truth. And um, he does. You're right. That's a very accurate and perceptive comment. He becomes a major character. He describes like a scene where he meets with Terry Melcher, who was Doris Day's son and supposedly had promised to record Charles Manson. And when he didn't, Manson got really angry at him. And and there are all sorts of implications in that that never got pursued because Melcher perjured himself on the stand and Bugliosi knew that he was perjuring himself on the stand. So, um, so, you know, he describes a scene where he's trying to confront Melcher and get him to answer his questions. And Melcher like threatens him and, um, you know, so Tom becomes a real character in that book, and I think it works really well because there's so much evil and so much corruption and lying and perversity in that book that you sort of need something to grab onto, you know? Yeah. Then about your process, is it is it organic, or do you spend a lot of time making a plan of where you want to go, and then you... You have a number of questions that you ask. You know, tell me about your writing process a little bit. Well, so it's really different between Mark Frost and the Hazel Drew projects. I mean, you know, I've been a curator at um, the Paley Center for like 26 years. And before that, I spent four years at Variety. So I've sort of been immersed in television. uh, And then I spent two years as a program director at TV Land. So I've been kind of immersed in TV and I know you know, a fair amount about TV. I'm not the world's greatest expert or anything, but, you know, I can talk to Mark Frost about um, what it was like working at MTM in the 80s on Hill Street Blues because I know the significance of, I mean, people forget Hill Street Blues and Stephen Bochco, but I know them from, uh, you know, my years of of having to know them. So, you know, with stuff, I I had to, you know, go out and read a lot of Mark's stuff, which I hadn't read uh prior. He's written something like seven, eight books. I I read all of them. There was a lot of research involved. I read 
June, I read Jung, I read Joseph Campbell, I read um, King Arthur stuff, Camelot stuff, um, all the stuff I read. I tried to read Theosophy; it wasn't easy. <laughs> um, I read Richard Shaver, the Shaver Mysteries, the Lemurians. So there's a ton of research involved, and there isn't Hazel too, a ton of research. But what we're doing with Hazel is we're spending a lot of time in the library looking at contemporaneous newspaper accounts. We're talking to a lot of people up in the area, some of whom are ancestors of the people who were, I'm sorry, descendants of the people who were involved in the crime. It's really hard. It's re- the, the, the Hazel Drew book is really hard because it's a murder that's over 100 years old. The records seem to have been disappeared in either a fire or a flood. Um, and, you know, they didn't have DNA and they didn't have fingerprinting. And it's really, really to do a historical and to write about an unsolved mystery that's over 100 years old is really hard. And by comparison, the Mark Frost book was a breeze. Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you so much for sharing with us. Sure, sure. My pleasure. It goes fast. It really does. You've been listening to David Bushman on 42 Minutes, a production of Syncbook Radio on the Syncbook.com. For more information about his work, check out paleymatters.org, to which we'll link. We'll also link to his books. For more information about the Syncbook, our guests, check out past shows or subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. Please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast, check out others. There's currently all the Syncbook Radio archives are free. We also feature a great search engine to help help you find what you need. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com. Thanks so much, and we tell ourselves stories in order to live. Have you seen the little biggies crawling in the dirt? And for all the little biggies, life is getting worse. Always having dirt to play Starched white shed, you will find bigger piggies stirring up the dirt. Always have clean sheds to play around with. In the skies with all the backing away. Folks and knives to eat.